You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Kootenai Community Church Adult Sunday School. The last time we looked at Philippians, we started in chapter 4, this couple of verses, and we ended up in verse 3 of chapter 4. Now, Paul, of course, in this situation, heard about a conflict between two of the women in the church, uh, Iodia and Syntyche, and he urged that one would give help and assist in reconciling these two. Now, obviously, he's writing to the church of Philippi, so the church of Philippi would be aware of the conflict. And yet, he only addresses one to come alongside and try to resolve the conflict. So that's where we open. So before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning for the privilege of gathering together collectively and to be able to go through and examine your word. I pray this morning, Father, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this text, not only to our understanding, but also, Father, to transform our minds and to accomplish in us that which you desire to do, to sanctify us and conform us to the image of your Son. We just ask now, Father, that you would be glorified as we study your word, and we just ask this in Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, we left off in verse 3, but to bring everything in context, let's go back to verse 2. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Then he goes on in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Well, we had a question last week and also a couple of comments, and I want to address those questions the question, I believe, by Mike was, was Paul invoking more people to come alongside these women to make sure that they resolve this struggle that they were having? And from the text, Paul, in verse 3, says this, Indeed, true companion. Now, the word true companion is important to us here because oftentimes words were used in which 
uh, a person would have a name which meant something. In this case, Suzugas was the name of an actual person. It is thought by most commentators. So Suzugas translates true companion. And so what Paul was doing was asking and entreating Suzugas to come alongside to keep the sphere of this conflict minimized and to resolve it before conflict began throughout the whole body in Philippi. So as we look at that, we also discussed, there was a question about how do you handle it if it doesn't get resolved there? Well, the first step would be uh, Galatians 6.1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And if that doesn't resolve, of course, you go to other measures, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and 15. There's many scriptures that cover resolving conflicts within the body of Christ. You do so because you want the body to be healthy and not to be off in a conflict because of individuals that weren't following God's word and got out of fellowship. So it does great damage to the individuals as well as the entire body. Also, another comment was made when people uh, pass on a prayer request that is in intercession on behalf of another. And sometimes, as was pointed out, Nathal pointed it out, people use that venue or avenue to perhaps pass on a bad report. And that is not what we should be doing, whether it be in a prayer chain or any other aspect of our communication for interceding for individuals in the body. So Paul was simply asking one individual he referred to as true companion. And as we look at this, we also think of Philemon, where Paul calls Philemon my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now useful to both you and me. The name Onesimus translated useful. And as in the book of Acts, Barnabas lived up to his name, which they referred to as son of encouragement. So throughout the New Testament, there may be names of individuals that mean something in a sense of practical naming, in in this case, true companion. It would appear from the text, using the name Susagos to refer to the one he was requesting to help, would be because he also named... uh, Clement, 
as well as the two women in conflict. So rather than calling him Susagos, he referred to him in the meaning of that name, true companion. Nothing is known about Clement. Some commentators suggest that he may have been the bishop of Rome, but there's no scripture that bears that out. So we really don't know that much about Clement, who Paul mentioned as one of those who helped in the labor of the gospel. The apostle concludes this verse with some very encouraging words in verse 3. Let's look at them. I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement, also the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So the book of life, it's important that we have an understanding of what that term means, or that phrase means. Let me quote uh, a man by the name of Henry Airey. He was a reformer, and this is back in 1544. He concluded that Paul expressing encouragement to those believers in Philippi and identifying them as those whose names were written in the book of life was not given to Paul as a divine revelation from God, but rather by Paul's keen observation of the continued perseverance of the saints demonstrating not only their love for God, but also their desire not only to love and obey God and grow in the knowledge of him, as well as continue their efforts and labors for the sake of the gospel, end quote. So Paul didn't have any special divine revelation as to who these people were that were in the book of life. He knew these Philippian believers well enough to know that they were servants of God and it was evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit in their lives and for them to continue on persevering, bringing forth the gospel. As we look at verse 4, Paul now enters into another encouragement to these Philippian saints. This book is referred to as the book of joy. So as we look at this, Paul is constantly exhorting and encouraging, as well as uh, reproving for the health of the body. As we look at this verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So, This is an imperative or a command. But let me ask this question. How could Paul command the people, the saints in Philippi, to rejoice? Anybody? Well, that is a legitimate question. However... The original language here is extremely important. The rejoicing in the Lord or joy in the Lord is not an emotion. It isn't dependent upon circumstances. That's why Paul, even in 
imprisonment and house arrest in Rome, was able to rejoice because his circumstances wasn't controlling his trust in God. Rejoicing in the Lord is expressing you have complete understanding of God's sovereignty over your life in any circumstance, any circumstances at all. So as we think of rejoicing or our joy, and that is distinctly different than happiness or an emotion that we may feel because of a pleasant circumstance. We get uh, news of somebody's health recovering. Well, we can thank the Lord for that, but we also feel uh, some relief and joy and happiness for this individual and their families. So, yes, Nathal. Exactly. Good. Did you hear this uh, statement by Nathal in her women's Bible study? One of the women pointed out that rejoicing in the Lord or joy in the Lord isn't necessarily expressing some happiness. It is the expression of confidence in the Lord and knowing that he is in control of everything. God's sovereignty is where we put our hope and trust. So that's important for us to understand. So Paul's able to give an imperative and then repeat this imperative. So by repeating that, he's stating that this is important, and yet it isn't natural for us to do. It's something we may cultivate through our deeper knowledge of Christ. As we see individuals, and even in this local body, suffering and going through difficulties, we also see the confidence they have. They don't lose hope. They know that God is sovereign over whatever they're going through. So they can take hope in that and rejoice. Knowing that Paul himself was suffering uh, and had suffered, suffered throughout his apostleship, being imprisoned, beaten, and suffering great difficulties throughout his journeys as a missionary, with the gospel, he encountered all kinds of trials, and yet he endured those because he understood who God is in the deeper relationship of that knowledge of God. That's also an evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. One of the Reformed commentators uh, referred to this as a a study on the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He focused on the evidence of our, of our salvation is that of the fruit of Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such there is no law. In Galatians 5, 22 and 23, Paul outlines the fruit of the Spirit as well as the fruit of the flesh. As believers, we sometimes find ourselves in a state that we consider it maybe difficult to express our joy in the Lord. And 
that's not something that we look at and just say, well, that person isn't very mature. He's not able to come to that point. But that's not so. Let me make a quote from A.W. Tozer from his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, which was brought forth by another commentator, John MacArthur. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's history will probably show that positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its knowledge of God. Worship is sure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portunous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his heart perceives and conceives of God to be like. We tend to be secret in a law of our soul to move forward and imagine what Christ or God would be. This is true not only of individual Christians, but of the company of that composes the church. Always, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. We're able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God? We might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Our knowledge of God is the key to rejoicing. The more we know the great truths about God, the easier it is for Christians to truly rejoice. If we look at the book of Psalms, end quote, if we look at the book of Psalms, we can gain great insights as to the reasons for rejoicing, beginning with Psalm 1. Psalm 1, the psalmist says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor seat in the seat of nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be a tree, like a tree firmly planted by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. That is how the psalmist begins the book of Psalms. So it wasn't unreasonable for the apostle to give this exhortation to the Philippians to rejoice. He gives us a clear understanding of how the believer can do this as he works through this passage. Even in verse 8, he says this, which we'll look at closer uh, later. 
Verse 8 in chapter 4 of Philippians, he says, Dwell upon whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. If there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think of that next time you turn on the news. It gives us a different perspective. I remember in a, one of the Sunday school classes with Phil Johnson was teaching, and he said, Christians, just turn off Fox and spend time in the Word. You won't be so depressed. <clears throat> a lot of elbows. Yeah. So as we look at this, let's uh, continue on. Paul says something very encouraging to them. Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. Now reflect back to the first couple of verses, and it would be with gentleness that you restore someone, as Galatians 6 outlines, 6.1. But Paul now is addressing that of having a gentle spirit. This is actually a very remarkable exhortation to the believers. Gentle spirit has a wide range of meaning. And the commentators say it's one of the richer words that English cannot really translate in the original. So trying to formulate an English word translated from the Greek word gentle spirit is difficulty. But here are some of the descriptions of a gentle spirit. Some will translate sweet reasonableness, generosity, goodwill, kindness, gentleness, considerateness, charitableness, geniality, mildness. Qualities are combined in the adjective noun that is used in this original language. So as we look at this word and the meanings of this word, it is what? It was be fulfilling and living out as we're in submission to the Holy Spirit. He produces that fruit in us, gentleness. And yet that word conveys a great deal. Think of how we would change relationships if we could approach individuals that were in conflict with gentleness. Soft answer turneth away wrath. If we were doing and interacting with people and doing something to try to come alongside and help somebody or we need to be corrected or reproved, it's always the attitude of gentleness that we approach those kind of things. But reflecting gentleness in our very daily lives is what Paul's calling them to do. Paul, in his letter to Corinthians, which has already been covered by Cornell, in in chapter 6, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, actually, then it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded in that context he was rebuking those that were taking Christians to court and battling before the unbelieving judges. 
I had a situation which was interesting uh, when I was down south. A professional man, a dental, uh, one in the dental field, a dentist, uh, did some extensive work on a patient. The dentist was a Christian, and the patient that he worked on was a Christian, or so he claimed. After doing the extensive work, he received the insurance money, the individual that were worked on, he spent it and didn't pay the dentist. Well, it was quite a bit. It was just under $8,000. So he called me in and asked if he could talk to me. So we did. He sat down. He said, I don't want to tell anyone else, and I'm not telling you who this is either, but I want to deal with this biblically. And he said, I know from 1 Corinthians 6 that I shouldn't go to court with another believer. And I said, that's correct. He said, so would you please help me in this mediation? I did. And I went to, I said, do you know where he goes to church? And he did. So I called the pastor and asked to meet with him, which I did, and told him basically the situation of the uh, member of his congregation. And I asked if we could meet together and try to bring resolve. So he, he said, well, I'll talk to him, and then we'll arrange to get together. And then time went by, I think a week, and I went, got back to him, and he hadn't called me. And I said, um, have you heard from that man? Have you been able to meet with him so we can arrange a meeting to, to try to help resolve this between these two Christians? And he goes, he doesn't really want to meet. I said, beg your pardon? And he said, he doesn't really want to meet. Well, it turns out that the individual refused to pay. He'd already spent the money. He was in debt with many things. And it turns out that he wasn't in good standing with other people or with his own relationship with the Lord. So it was not resolved at that time. And we went on. And really, the, the dentist didn't pursue further. He said, I don't want to bring this to a court with another believer. And I said, that's good if you can do that. So he would rather be defrauded in that case. Having a gentle spirit is essential in order to have true happiness, to be able to endure mistreatment and injustice without retaliation or bitterness. Your gentle spirit should be known to all men. The virtue of a gracious, humble spirit is, can accomplish much. But more so, it is the aspect of God's spirit working in us and enabling us to recognize that what do we have that we haven't been given? And who are we other than what God has made us to be? So we should glorify him in our lives, and part of that is living out our faith, being governed and aligned and submitted to God's word and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. As we think of that, remember back at the closing of chapter 3. Paul closed with these two verses. He says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So Paul is building up these saints and showing them who they are in Christ. Then he's giving them practical instruction of the conduct that Chase should be living as those who are citizens of heaven. We should be reflecting that of what the gospel is. We should be living out the gospel. And that's what Paul's instructing here. He's given them practical teaching in their conduct. And he wants them to be recognized in that community of Romans and Philippi, in that Roman culture, to be set apart and witness to them, a light in darkness. <clears throat> he, in the latter part of verse 5, he said, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The Lord is near is a true, unwavering source of joy for us as believers. This is why Paul can command believers to rejoice in the Lord. That phrase gives the principle of understanding who God is and what he has done. So as we think of rejoicing in the Lord and also think of God is near, what does that mean? Does it mean in proximity or does it mean in time? Is he we're looking for his return. So you bring up the question when Paul said the Lord is near, that can be in space or near in time. Some have taken this word, which comes from the word ingus, in, in a chronological sense, referring to Christ's return, and it's used also in the epistle of James. James 5.8 says this, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. So Paul was waiting for the imminent return of Christ, looking for Christ's return, as were many of the saints. In fact, he had to reprove the saints in Thessalonica because of their uh, imminent looking forward to Christ's return, and yet it affected their daily lives to such where some had to be reproved. And that is that they were looking only for that and neglecting some of their responsibilities. Others have taken this to refer to a believer's death, which would usher them into the Lord's presence. Philippians 1.23, remember Paul said this, But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having a desire to part and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And then 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. So Paul's desire was to be with the Lord. And yet he also knew it would be fruitful for those that he was ministering to if he remained. Either way, he served the Lord. 
These are really, excuse me, comforting truths. And it could be Paul's emphasis here is on the Lord's nearness and the sense of his presence. He is near to hear the petitions of his children and to help strengthen them. The psalmist says this in Psalm 73, verse 28. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge and that I may tell of all your works. Christians, even knowing the great promises that God gives us as his elect, we sometimes forget, and yet we know to be true in times of testing. In other words, oftentimes when we go through severe trials, we can forget the truths that God has revealed to us. And yet Paul wants us to constantly be in focus of God's word. So it is a part of our lives. It's transforming our lives as he taught in Romans chapter 12. Scriptures are replete with vivid examples of God's servants who in going through great trials and difficulty will rely upon their own efforts and reason or even attempt to escape the dangers. One of the examples is given uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 11 through 15. Some of the Philistines recognized David and spoke to Ashes, king of Gath, and told them that this David, this king who had, they had songs about him, that Saul had killed his thousands, but David ten thousands. So he was jealous. He pursued uh, David. Now he's in Gath, and the king of Gath, uh, the Philistines recognized him. So this is what David does. Instead of trusting God to deliver him, David feared for his life. And he disguised his sanity before the Philistines and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down his beard, feigning insanity, which produced the desired results that he wanted because then Achis said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving like a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you brought this one to act like a madman in my presence? So this one come into my house? As a result, David departed from there and went to the cave of Adullam. After that, when David was safe and out of harm's way, he had realized that he wasn't trusting in God. As a result of that, he penned Psalm 57, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 57, but I'll just read the first three verses. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send me from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me, Selah. 
God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. That is how God worked through uh, Paul, uh, David, remembering the true character of God. And it brought him spiritual stability. And that's the whole essence of this text that we're looking at in Philippians. Paul wanted spiritual stability with these saints in Philippi. It's easy to experience in comfort the promises of God that he's given his saints. But we have to remember, where did we come from? God, in eternity past, called his elect. He selected his elect. We were written in the book of life. The book of life is that register which God has of his elect from eternity past. He called us, he's sanctifying us, and he will glorify us. It is his work beginning to end, and yet we lose sight of that. If God in his sovereignty elected us before the foundations of the world, we are his vessels, and as such, We are that which is the light in the world. And he wants us to grow in the knowledge of him. Out of that flows everything. It isn't something we want to do a work or a program. We want to glorify God with our lives. But we must understand who he is and have a deeper, richer understanding of God. There's an example, another example giving of Uh, Old Testament prophet, which I think was taught by Jim back in 2000 when I first came here, Habakkuk. In that text of the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, Habakkuk cries out to the Lord. He says, how long, O Lord, will I call for the help? And you will not hear. I cried out to you, violence, Yet you do not save. What do you make me see? Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround righteousness. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. That sounds familiar could be today. God's answer to Habakkuk was this. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans that fears impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared, and the justice and the authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. They hoard of faces 
<clears throat> they hoard faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They make mockery of kings and rulers. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God, small g. Habakkuk 1 through 5. Instead of answering Habakkuk's original question, God replied with an even more troubling answer. How could he use a godless nation? Uh, Habakkuk says, instead of Habakkuk having the answer to his original question, God told him what he was going to do with the Chaldeans. He was going to use that wicked nation to chastise his people. Even facing those declarations that God had made, in chapter 2, Habakkuk says this, the righteous will live by his faith. And in the final chapter and verses of the book of Habakkuk, he says this, though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive tree should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The God, Lord God, is my strength, and he has made my feet hinds feet and makes my walk on makes me walk on high places that's the very closing verses of this minor prophet he had realized again that he was looking at circumstances rather than trusting in the god who is sovereign over all circumstances which reflected his rebuke and yet his repentance and trust and restoration I want to close with this quote. This is written by one of the earlier reformers, a man by the name of Lancelot Ridley. This was written in the 1600s, and it summarizes this whole text that Paul, that we've been looking at this morning. The apostle exhorts us to rejoice in the Lord and not in any other things of this world, not in honors, riches, friends, kindred, gold, silver, lands, possessions, or in wisdom, or in prudence of the flesh, or in strength of body, therefore he will rejoice. Let him rejoice in God, who is the author of all goodness, delivers from all evils and adversaries. Therefore, says the apostle, he will rejoice. Let him rejoice in God. And so shall his joy be full, sure, constant, permanent, and perfect. And here he rebukes such as rejoice more in worldly things than in God, as these who reject <clears throat> or rejoice in riches, lands, possession, and people, and magistrates, and nobility of stock in their religion and cunning, learning, and such like, more than God. All such here are reproved. Rejoice, therefore, in the Lord, always and all, in all times and places. End quote.
Well, let's go to the Lord. I, I think we have a bit of an understanding of Paul urging us to a deeper relationship with the Lord, which produces that fruit of the Spirit in us to be manifest. So as we think of this, and especially in this time uh, when we live in such a troubled world, but it was no different. Man has been depraved since Genesis 3 in the fall, and yet God provided a hope. So as we come across people, and we will during this season, that don't know the Lord, be praying that God would give us an opportunity to share that hope that lies within us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for illuminating your word through your spirit. I thank you for the great teachers that you have raised up through church history. And Father, we ask that you'd be glorified through our service today and the preaching of your word and our songs and hymns. And as the choir presents this program, uh, celebrating your birth, we ask, Father, that you'd be glorified through all that we do. And we just praise you now and thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.